welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and welcome to episode 26 of the Madden America podcast. This week, Madden America's assistant editor, Emily Shearer Cutler, interviews the president of Mind Freedom International, Celia Brown. Today, we will be speaking with Celia Brown, a psychiatric survivor and a prominent leader in the movement for human rights and mental health. Celia is the current president of Mind Freedom International, a nonprofit organization uniting 100 sponsor and affiliate grassroots groups with thousands of individual members to win human rights and alternatives for people labeled mentally ill. Celia also serves on the board of the National Empowerment Center and has co-chaired the planning committee for the National Alternatives Conference for the past few years. She was last year's recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Alternatives Conference. In this episode, we will be discussing the history of the human rights movement to combat forced treatment and the important role Celia has played in it. I'd like to start out by having you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work. So, Celia, can you tell us a bit about your background and the work you do now? Well, I'm still fighting for human rights and mental health. I'm very into uh, mind freedom, but I'm also involved in other groups. Mind freedom is like a passion for me because it's all like-minded people trying to fight, you know, human rights violations in the mental health system. So I get to really talk to so many people that are fighting that fight, you know, on a local level, grassroots level, national and, and internationally. So that's really, really supports me, you know, in my work and in my journey and my healing. Uh, you know, it's not easy to do activism work. You know, sometimes your own issues come up and clash with other people that might have different issues in the movement. And you just have to keep yourself focused on what the task is in mind. And that's really the fight for human rights. So what does the movement for human rights and mental health mean to you? For the benefit of our listeners, can you describe what it has to do with forced treatment? Yes. The human rights movement and mental health has to do with, well, two of the values is self-definition and self-determination. And it's really fighting forced treatment, like forced electroshock, or psychiatric drugs, or any other thing that is doesn't come natural, that's forced with the person or with the, with the mental health system. And as someone who has done work in this movement for decades, I'd like to talk to you about the history of the movement. How did the movement for human rights and mental health first start, and who were some of the initial leaders? Well, it started in the 1960s, and it's a really little, that's like <laughs> before my time, <laughs> but it started around that time, and it started, you know, with some key leaders like David Oakes was involved, Howie the Harp, uh, Judy Chamberlain, Joe Rogers, Daniel Fisher. Uh, there was a bunch of people who got together to say, hey, you know, we don't want to be forced into treatment in the mental health system, and we want to create alternatives to that system. So a number of, like, consciousness-raising activities happened. They used to meet in the basement. We had the Mental Patient Liberation Front in New York, and I believe in also Boston, Massachusetts, 
where people would just talk about their experiences in the system and how they were treated, how they were forced, you know, to get the support they needed to fight this huge fight that we have in the mental health system. One of my key leaders is Judy Chamberlain, who's no longer with with us. She's one of our ancestors now. But she really fought for human rights. She she was able to talk to so many different groups about this issue of force. She was international. She sat on so many different boards, including NARPA. She was a board member of Mind Freedom for a long time. And she was also working for the National Empowerment Center. She's published a, a, a book on our own, which is translated in, in so many different languages about patient-controlled alternative. She's written so many articles that people can go back and, and really read what she had to offer about her experiences. So she's really someone that I always felt as a role model, and I, I did know her and, and really highly respect for her work. Same here. She's definitely been very influential. Um, so what were some of the key achievements in the early years of the movement? Well, I think one of the, the early achievements were was doing the consciousness raising piece of letting people know that you don't have to be forced. You have a voice. And even if you're labeled a diagnosed with a mental illness, you should be in charge of your own life and making your own decisions. There are a lot of newsletters going out, like uh, David Oakes did a Dendron, Madness Network News. And that's the way we communicated with each other then. There wasn't the internet, that people were able to see different meetings that were going on and different perspectives and poetry. We're, we're a movement that is really creative. We also did protests at the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, We have many protests at different mental health hospitals, fighting shock. So we were able to get our voice out there and heard. And can you tell us a bit about how the movement came to evolve into what it is today? What were some of the key developments in the past few decades? The mission of the movement is no force, no force treatment, no force interventions. There's so many different terms. But really, we don't want anything that threatens our mental and physical integrity, which I think is important. If you're forced to do shock treatment, and it's really a part of coercion, there really isn't any informed consent. This has been an issue because a lot of electroshock survivors that I've spoken to over the years, you know, they lose their memories, things that have meant so much to them, like children being married or just key memories are are stolen from them from shock treatment. And this is something that is, there's another kind of movement with people who've been shocked, although we're all a part of it, but it's focused on ending shock. There's also been people who have been taking psychiatric drugs, and I just want to say in Mind Freedom, it's a choice what people want to do. It's just that if they're forced, Mm -hmm. then that's, um, that's an issue. So some of these psychiatric drugs cause real harm. And, you know, I think we've been able to educate people from then until now about some of the harmful effects of some of the psychiatric drugs. So I think that's key awareness of letting people know. And what about the peer movement? Can you speak a little bit about the peer specialist movement and maybe 
any influence that has had on the human rights movement and kind of where the peer movement might overlap with the human rights movement and where it might diverge? Well, the peer movement, peer specialist movement is really, it started back in like 1989. And I was one of the first peer specialists in New York State. And it was really about system change you know, being change agents, telling us stories, being on the front line every day that they all knew this person is in recovery, has gone through something. Uh, so that's pretty radical to go back into the system and say, hey, you know, I've been through this and I'm coming in to educate you, educate, you know, mental health professional staff. I'm here to be a role model for my peers who are still locked up in the hospital. And I, I think that that's a positive experience for peer specialists that opt to go back into the system to work. I also think it has to do with economics, that a lot of us were told that we could never work. We never work. We never get married. We ne we'd never do anything. So to, to be in the system and working full time is an achievement in, in, in my eyes. On the flip side of it, you can get co-opted, like start using the language of the mental health system and saying, oh, my clients or this person is mentally ill and using the language of the system rather than using language that you can adopt from the psychiatric survivor human rights movement and always being grounded in that when you are entering the system and on all different ways that it can harm people, sometimes it helps people. But I see that we're like messengers of hope, peer specialists, that we go in there and we're giving a message of, look, I'm still on a journey in my healing, and at some point you can be the same way. Rather than never seeing us at all and just having professional staff that don't really understand what a peer might be going through. So it's, it's, it's a radical change, I would say. There's problems with it, but it's also positive as well. And I liked that you brought up language and how important that is to the human rights movement. Could you speak more about kind of the history of developing an alternative language to what's used in the mental health system? Well, I have been involved in so many uh, like national meetings and national conference calls, including Judy Chamberlain and David Oaks and, you know, people who were so tired of the language that was given to us, not even asked if this is how we want to be addressed. So, you know, we had this long problem with the with the word consumer like consumer mental health service what are we consuming we're not buying anything in the system so consumer is still being used today but it's frowned upon in the psychiatric survivor movement another word i i think that howie de harp liked this word was recipient of mental health services, like you're receiving services. But we evolved to say, hey, we're ex-patients. I mean, I don't think that term is used that much, but it was in the beginning of the movement that you're an ex-patient. That means you have nothing to do with the mental health system at all. And then survivor, which I love, psychiatric survivor, is that we're still surviving something. We're surviving the, the psychiatric oppression that all of us go through. And so, we're, you know, we continue to survive and it's okay. Uh, but we're here which is important. There's been some language like people with psychiatric histories. That's another phrase that people can use. 
But I think it's more used for the public or so used to saying, oh, the schizophrenic or you're mentally ill. But if you say people with psychiatric histories, I, I think that that's acceptable language. And what do you think of the term mental illness? Do you think that it's important that we diverge from that? Yes, because I think that we're more than the illness. The illness to me is a discrimination. So if you're going around and, the, and you introduce yourself as I'm bipolar, how does that define who you are? That It's a label that was given to you. And I know that some people are comfortable with the diagnosis because it helps them define who they are. But for me, I need not have the label because it's problematic. It makes it seem like I'm just that label instead of a person, someone's sister, someone's girlfriend, someone's mom, that all of a sudden I'm an illness and I can't get out of that bubble. So it was always problematic for me. And I needed to understand. And I read about, you know, what the diagnosis is. Am I all of that? No. Am I some of it? So I, I really don't try to address myself with the label. I use words. I could be depressed or I'm going through a trauma, some kind of trauma, or I'm trying to heal. I'm into wellness, that kind of thing. So I want to use words that really identify what I'm actually going through. Where does the movement for human rights and mental health stand today and what's been happening in the past few years? Well, in the past few years, we had a split. So there were people in the movement that didn't want to accept any government money for mental health, no pharmaceutical money. And there's still people today that don't do it. Then there was a split where people began to work for the system, educate them about some of our, our ideas. And that was a real, and I think it still is, a tension in the movement where people don't trust the system, or they don't trust psychiatry at all. And then for the people who decided, hey, I'm going to work in the system and try to make a difference, and I'm going to get paid for it. So it, it's that fine line that still is continuing. But I want to say that, first of all, the movement has saved my life. I just want to say that up front. You know, people bash the movement, the movement this, movement that, but the movement has created the change that we see in, in mental health and in this life. We have done that. So I don't always think we get the credit for doing that, but we have. And we continue to make paradigm shifts and change. We create change. We create alternatives to mental health. So, uh, you know, I'm really proud to be in this movement. Same here. It's absolutely saved my life. So what about um, any current advocacy initiatives, anything that Mind Freedom International is doing? What's going on in terms of fighting for human rights and combating forced treatment? Well, one thing I want to say that Mind Freedom just got an awarded a grant from the Foundation of, of Excellence in Mental Health Care. Congratulations. And yeah, thanks. So we're working out the, you know, kinks of that. But basically what we want to do is we wanted to teach people about forced treatment. And we want to do it through webinars, virtual meetings. We, we're going to create some videos for our membership and, and beyond. So that's happening. I think we've done a lot of work around, and I, I want to credit Tina Minkowitz for the CRPD, the Convention on the Rights for People with Disabilities, with continuing work on that. I think this is one of the best legislations and treaties that we've had because it focuses on abolishing forced treatment and really switching from 
thinking that people can't make their own decisions to that they can. And, and it's not about the person, but it, it may be the environment, maybe the discrimination, not focusing on the, the person that has a disability. So I think that is one of the key, and this happened in 2006, was adopted at the UN. And there's more work to do on that. And there's another bill, and I'm not too familiar with it, but I'm getting familiar with it more in the disability community, a bill on having people with disabilities be in the community. I'm blanking out the name of it. Maybe you know. I think the Disability Integration Act, something along that line. Right. Yeah. Yes. I think that that might be a key that we can all rally around, create campaigns like Mind Freedom Can Help, or we could do something all together to really affect legislation. I think that we ha what we haven't done well is affecting legislation that ultimately can hurt and change our lives. So anything around forced treatment that's in legislation now, nationally, it needs to be changed. And so we have to work really hard on that, I believe. And we could do it locally on a local level, and we can also do it nationally. So could you speak more to some of the challenge this movement historically has encountered? Um, it definitely has been hard to change legislation around forced treatment. Why do you think it's so difficult to get people to understand the struggle or get legal changes protecting the rights of people labeled mentally ill? Well, because I, I think we have all different messages. We have people who don't want anything to do with psychiatry and the mental health system. And we have people who do and people who are in the recovery movement or the peer movement. And I think the message needs to be, I mean, we don't have to agree on everything, but the message should be no more forced treatment, no more putting more funds into force instead of voluntary services. And I think that's been an issue on all fronts. And also blaming the movement for not thinking the way everyone else is thinking. Okay, let's compromise our beliefs. Uh, some people are working in the system, which I have nothing against. I think it's up to people what they want to do. But what is the message? Don't beat up the movement. The movement is there and flourished and helped a lot of these programs be developed and funded throughout the years. So we, we need a message that we can agree on that we're going to just fight for us. We don't want to be, we don't want our, our children, we don't want our grandmothers and our elders to be forced uh, lecture shock. We don't want that. And we don't also want them to be on psychiatric drugs that they don't want to be on. So those are the things that we still have to fight. Can you also speak to how the movement for human rights and mental health has intersected and overlapped with other human rights movements, both historically, like the feminist movement and the civil rights movement, and today um, in terms of other social justice groups? Well, I wasn't in <laughs> the feminist women's movement. I have read a lot about it. I think there's been some some pluses on like the civil rights movement really comes out of our movement. And we're really the last civil rights movement, the psychiatric survivor and human rights movement. But during, I could speak the civil rights movement where there was Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks and others. That's something that we wanted to be a part of. Although our movement was different, we were fighting against forced psychiatric treatment. I think that that was an important thing. I think it was important that David Oakes created a nonviolent revolution in the mental health system. And he got that from Martin Luther King Jr., which is one of his heroes. And that was a slogan for years. It still is. 
that we want nonviolence and, and to have our own integrity over our body. We don't want someone to say, well, we think we know what's best for you. So we're going to give you shock and we're going to give you psychiatric drugs. We don't want that anymore. We think that we can make our own decisions, our own treatment decisions that affect our own lives. I could say that someone I think that might have affected the women's and feminist movement and actually had the pleasure of knowing her was Kate Millett, who was a feminist, but she also was a psychiatric survivor. And early on when she was in the feminist movement, she had a couple of, you know, emotional emotional breakdowns and she was really the feminist and women's movement really did not really want to work with people that had mental health issues so way back then it was happening but she was able to bridge the two worlds i think being a feminist and also to be in the psychiatric survivor movement. She was a Mind Freedom member, and she also was a part of our team at the United Nations uh, negotiating the Convention on the Rights with People with Disabilities. So she was a key player there that nobody talks about. But I think Tina talks about it. A lot of people don't really know. Bless her. She just passed away on September 6th. Uh, but she's given a lot. She's written this wonderful book. Um, it's an old book. It's called The Looney Bin Trip. And it talks about her experiences with altered states and how, and how she was forced in the hospital. It's really an excellent book for people who are just getting into this. And what about the disability rights movement? I know you mentioned the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Can you speak more to the intersection with our movement yes, and the disability I movement? Yes. I think the intersection is much better now than it has been. I think we've had some key leaders like Howie T. Harp, who had a disability, a physical disability, and also survivor. He was able to be a part of both and really able to bring us the survivor movement into people with uh, physical disabilities. I've seen the most progress of that is at the UN when we work side by side with people with disabilities, you know, people who are blind or deaf or in a wheelchair. They were able to, and it took a while, a couple of years, we educated them about some of our issues and their issues are our issues too, because a lot of people in our survivor movement, they may have a physical disability or they may get one later in life. For now, I think it's intersecting well. I think there's probably more to do, but I, I think that it's not us and them. I think we're working better together. That's great to hear. So one of the first words I always think of when hearing about the movement for human rights and mental health is legacy. And you've certainly spoken to the rich history of this movement and community. Um, so how can people carry on this legacy? And what advice would you have for people who want to get involved? Well, I would say, you know, learn the history in, in terms of whatever way you can do it. For me, it's reading articles from some of our past, you know, human rights activists. It's looking at videos. Now we have video. You know, it's getting involved in so many different levels. And I also want to say that my advice is to, and what I, could, I do, is mentor new people coming into the movement. Because I'm not going to always be here, and, and a lot of us are not going to be here. So we have to sort of step aside, not out of the movement, but step aside and, and sort of reel in, move the new people, the youth and whoever else, into the movement to create some of the change we want to see in the world. 
and also to listen to the new people. What have been your experiences? Because we have done things in a certain way in the movement doesn't mean that the youth and other people are going to do it the same way. Their issues are different now than they were in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. So what are your issues? How can we work together? How can we educate each other? And this, I think, is the way to move forward. What about new people seeking mentorship? How can they get involved? Are there any organizations or conferences they can attend where they can kind of meet other people and find mentors in the movement? Yeah, they can go to NARPA, which is a a yearly conference, National Association of Rights Protection and Advocacy. And that's the organization with lawyers and advocates. I think they can learn a lot there. I think they can also learn from alternatives. That might be something that people would like to attend and they can meet other people. Mind Freedom has a creative revolution conference every year and we focus on alternatives like Hearing Voices Network, Crisis Respites. I also think, and I'll put a plug into it, Emily, is Mad in America. I think they can go there too to learn different perspectives and and help them with consciousness raising. I I know this is an old word, but I love it. Because I think people need that kind of awareness. So I think these conferences, uh, there's many conferences that people can go to. So we really can get people to think outside of the box and get away from the traditional medical model. Okay, so Celia, could you tell us a little bit about Surviving Race? Yes, the the complete name is Surviving Race, the Intersection of Injustice, Disability, and human rights in the movement. Uh, it started in 2014, and at that time, there there was some uh, police shooting of people, um, you know, people of color, mainly African-American men and also women. And also, which has been happening for a long time, is people called 911, and that person might have been in emotional distress, the police show up at the apartment and that person is, you know, might came to them with the, a knife. Uh, and there was no way that the police were able to sort of de-escalate the situation. They would just shoot the person and that person lost their life. So we formed it at the beginning to really fight for that as well and fight police brutality. But as we moved on, we found out that uh, we needed to really focus on, you know, race, injustice, disability uh, in our movement. And there were people that were feeling like they felt excluded from the movement. Um, So we also were addressing that as well. Uh, and the way we addressed it is we, we have a Facebook page. We have 567 members. And we uh, we have conference calls, mainly on the weekend, where we talk about all of these issues. So we not only talk about racism, we talk about sexism. Uh, you know, in our movement, but in the society as gen- in general. Um sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all of it, and also connecting to other movements like Black Lives Matter and let other people know that we're here, um, that we want to work together, 
on, 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 you know, different issues. The great thing about surviving race is that we have uh, new people who are in our movement and we have people, um, uh, act, human rights activists that have been around for a long time. So we have people like uh, Ted Chapasinski, and he's one of the people that I, I really admire, that I've met in the movement, who's been fighting shock. He's a shock survivor. We have Dorothy Dundas, also a, a survivor, and Mary Maddock, who's a part of Mind Freedom Island. Um, so we have we have so many different issues, and we have to figure out a way that we can work together, understand our different cultural backgrounds as well. And I, I think we've been making really good progress. There's more to, to, to do. And um, I think if us as a movement, as a human rights movement, can work on these issues that sometimes, a lot of times, society doesn't uh, understand and discriminates then we're in the best position to educate everybody else uh, in society and in, uh, in the public. So other people that are part of the movement and then also a part of Surviving Race, I, you know, I mentioned uh, a couple of names, but I also wanted to mention uh, Lauren Tenney, uh, Jen Patron, Tracy Love, Yvonne Smith, uh, George Ebert, Laura Van Tosh, and this is just to name a few. But we have members all over the country and the world, and we're pretty proud of it. And we're just working to educate each other, develop some projects that we all want to work with. And it's all based on educating the public around race, human rights, uh, and disability issues. And um, police brutality is, is a very important issue for all of us. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate all the work you've done to advance the human rights of people labeled mentally ill. And I am very grateful to have had the chance to speak with you. I'm grateful too, Emily. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to thank both Celia and Emily for sharing that interview with us. If you'd like to know more about Celia and the work that she's involved in, there are links on the post that accompanies this interview on maddenamerica.com. So thank you for listening. Please come back next week for another episode. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.